Before I preach, I want to tell you that for the next few months, we're going to have a uh, special series in our sermons, and um, we'll take a break from it for about five weeks to preach on money, which is something that in the richest nation that the world has ever known, I have been unfaithful to do often enough. Um, And before and after that series, which I think will be in... uh, Will that be October? Okay. Okay, so that will be in October. We're going to have a series called Jesus, the Friend of Sinners. And we're going to focus in that series on Jesus' tender solicitude, his uh, kind, endearing treatment of sinners, real sinners. And uh, we've divvied it up, and as usual this morning, I blew to smithereens the schedule immediately because you'll see what happens this morning. It'll be a train wreck, so um, so the schedule's already messed up. But if you go to the website, you'll see on the front page, Jesus, Friend of Sinners. And the goal of this is for us to have you find some sinners in your life. Of course, that's difficult when... Many of you only know yourself, and of course, you're not a sinner. Um, But find sinners and bring them to the Savior. And you'll see that theme this morning in our sermon, and that's going to be the theme for several months. And uh, so I encourage you to make good use of it in loving the souls that are perishing around you. Okay? Now, this morning, would you open your Bibles up to John chapter 4? Would you open, please, to the book of John, the fourth chapter? If you don't have a Bible, it's published up on the wall through light. And uh, you can follow along up there. John chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 to 43. Because it's so long this morning, why don't you stand up to show honor to the Word of God? All right, John 1, 4-3, this is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to her, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? 
Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. Thus you have said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for such people. The Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, His disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Have a seat, please. At about 727, not about, I guess if I'm going to say 727, in 727, um, Salmaneser, king of Assyria, took over the northern kingdom of Israel. 
So Israel was divided into the ten tribes up north and the two tribes in the south. And the two tribes in the south are called Judah, and that's where Jerusalem was. And Jerusalem was where God commanded the Jews to worship him. That's where the temple was to be. And all the time in the Old Testament, when you read references to, for instance, the high places, those are the, uh, the, the heresies of the Old Testament. Because God had been very specific in saying that they were not to worship anywhere but in Jerusalem according to his command. So when people set up competing places of worship, and typically they were in high places, those were the heresies, those were the places that were forbidden to them. So in 727, Salmanezer of Assyria came and he overtook the northern kingdom and he took into captivity all the Jews of the northern kingdom. All right? And in their place, he brought in Assyrians, residents of his own kingdom. And there were a few Jews left, and over many centuries, what happened was that the pagan Assyrians intermarried with the Jews, and it became a mongrel people, all right? Some of you have read History of South Africa, and you know how mulattoes were despised by both blacks and whites, all right? They were, half, they were half-breeds in, in, uh, the, in the early period of America. If you were a half-breed, you were half-Indian and half-white. And so that was, the, uh, that was the reputation of the Samaritans. They were half-breeds, all right? And because so much was based upon your racial and ethnic heritage, on your fathers, all right, um, they were utterly despised by the Jews, down in Judah, and the Judeans, the Jews, were despised by the Samaritans. And that was the state of affairs. Three centuries after Salmanezer took over the northern kingdom, uh, there was a, um, a rebel named Manasseh down in the southern kingdom of Judah. And he was closely related to the high priest, all right? So you remember, Jerusalem is the only place the Jews are allowed to worship. He's closely related to the high priest, and he takes a pagan woman as his wife. Now, because this is one of the first Sundays where students are present, I'm going to tell you God has always forbidden to you to marry an unbeliever. And this was true in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was absolutely prohibited for the people of God to marry idolaters, all right? Well, Manasseh didn't care. He was close, closely related to the high priest in the southern kingdom, and he went ahead and married an idolater. And for that, he was exiled from Judah, and he went north into Assyria, or I mean into uh, Samaria, into uh, Israel. Those terms can be used interchangeably, Israel and Samaria. When he went up there, he set up a competing temple to his own relatives who were the priests of the temple down in Jerusalem. Completely against the command of God for him to marry outside of the faith, completely against the kingdom of God for him to set up a competing uh, orthodoxy, a competing temple, a competing uh, cult worship. All right? That's what this woman at the well refers to when she talks about our fathers worshiping and the Jews worshiping. It's the tension between those two. In the New Testament, you'll read about Samaritans again and again. Samaritans were so hated 
that the Pharisees would refer to Sadducees as Samaritans. So the words heretic, Sadducee, and Samaritan were used interchangeably. All right? When the Christians confessed faith in Jesus Christ, the Pharisees began to refer to the Christians as Samaritans. So it had become a generic term of, uh, what's the term that uh, Brits use? Uh, I can't remember what the term is, but there's a colonial term that they use to, huh? No, not Yankees. There's another term. It's a short term. Um, that they use to refer to whatever the, the, the locals are. Um, so anyhow, uh, that's Samaria. Those are the Samaritans. If there was a battle with Judah, the Samaritans always took the side of Judah's opponents. Um, at one period of time, the Samaritans actually sold residents of Judah into slavery. At this time, it was not uncommon for the Samaritans to attack and to kill Jews traveling through their land. So Jesus is on a journey, and he can go on a long dog leg and get around Samaria, but he goes through it. It's the middle of the day. It's probably hot. And the Bible tells us that he's very, very tired when he gets to this village of Sychar, right? And here's what we read. He came to a city of Samaria, verse 4, it's called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Joseph, Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, it's interesting that Jesus is resting at the well while the disciples go into town. And if you think about what Jesus' life was, he would have constantly been ministering to people. He would have been praying, he would have been teaching, and then he would have been counseling them. Jesus did not know such a thing as a television ministry. Jesus did not have video venues. There was never any ministry for Jesus that was not flesh and blood and sin and paralysis, and death, and leprosy, and everybody that Jesus dealt with, he dealt with personally. And before he would preach, and after he would preach, there would just have been an unending stream of people asking for his attention. And we see that all through the Gospels. And so Jesus would always have maintained an, an intensity of, of, uh, of tiredness, exhaustion, that his disciples wouldn't because you can see his disciples trying to create space for him regularly, you know, shooing people away, not letting him listen to the guy yelling, getting rid of the little babies, you know, give him space, give him time. You know, we read about one time he's in a house, it's so packed that his mother and his brothers can't even get in the house because there's not space, or the guy let down from the roof because there's not space. So here he is in the middle of the day, and he's exhausted, and he just sits down. Well, he's sitting down at the well, and a woman from the local town comes out to get water. And so Jesus says to her, we see here in verse uh, 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. 
Now, it's often true that as you read Scripture, you wonder if, you, if God would not let you hear the nuance, you know, the inflection, the tone of voice that the words are said in. And here, what we particularly wonder is whether Jesus said, give me a drink because he was thirsty or give me a drink because he wanted to engage the soul of a sinner. Well, you don't have to choose. I'm sure they were both true. I'm sure that she, as she walked and as she lived, sent out signals of who and what she was, right? We all do that, you know? And so Jesus probably was thirsty, and certainly Jesus wanted to give himself to this woman. And so he puts himself in her um, debt. And that's one of the sweetest things, I think, about this story is that Jesus doesn't put himself in the debt of the local rich man. He doesn't put himself in the debt of respectable citizen. He doesn't put himself in the debt of a Jew. He puts himself in the debt of a Samaritan and a woman. And he asks her for a favor. And I don't know any other way of referring to that other than to say that it's an act of a gentleman. Now, if you think Jesus was always a gentleman, you're crazy. Unless, of course, exposing sin is the act of a gentleman. But there's an old quote that says, a gentleman, it's almost a definition of a gentleman that he never inflicts pain. So if that's your definition of a gentleman, Jesus is not a gentleman. But here, he's a gentleman, and he does approach her gently by asking her for a favor. Give me a drink. Verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So he's alone. There are no disciples with him, and he asks her for a drink. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see parentheses around there, and that indicates it's an editorial comment, but I don't think it is. I think she actually said that, and and the parentheses aren't in the Greek. All right? What's she doing? Well, she's, she's rebuking Jesus for not being a snob. She wants him to hold up his side of the argument because she done holding up her side of the argument. You know, and how can you have a fight if the other person isn't willing? And so she says, what are you doing asking me for a favor? You're not supposed to ask me for a favor. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, Jesus here is not engaging the debate. Jesus is avoiding the argument. It is a rebuke if you knew who I was. Now, you say, well, that's not what he says. He says, if you knew the gift of God. But that's what he's saying. He's saying, if you knew who I was, if you knew who God was sending to you, if you knew that God was giving me to you right now. That's what he's saying. How do we know? Well, in the previous chapter, John chapter 3, is one of the more famous uh, verses of Scripture where an entirely different sort of individual came to Jesus 
And that individual was perfection. That was a Pharisee. That was a Jew. That was a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he came to Jesus seeking the words of eternal life. And Jesus said to him, you remember, for God, what? So loved the world that he, what? Gave his only begotten son. And so now you come to the Samaritan woman. She's as opposite Nicodemus as she can be, right? And he says to her, if you knew the gift of God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew who I was, if you knew who God was giving to you right now, right in front of you, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. Now, what is living water? Living water is the Holy Spirit. You remember that story? I think it's one of the most encouraging stories about fatherhood in all of Scripture. It's the story Jesus tells. Maybe it's not a story, but it's just an illustration where he says, you know, what's, what son asks his father for a loaf of bread and the dad gives him a snake or a fish and maybe I'm getting it mixed up. No, he gives him stones and then he gives him a snake. And then he says this, he says, if you, being evil, <laughs> and so the father's in front of him, he says, you're evil, and I just think that's a wonderfully encouraging thing for fathers. You're evil, yeah, yeah, your, your children got it right when they judged you, you are evil, right? If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your father, how much more does your heavenly father give good gifts to those that ask him, and the good gift of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus here is saying to them, if you knew that I am God's gift to you, you would ask me for living water, which is the Holy Spirit. If you look over at chapter 7 of John, beginning with verse 37, you read this. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, this is in Jerusalem, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow, what? Rivers of living water. And then it says this, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now we come back to chapter 4 and we read that Jesus said, if you do the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He would have given you the Holy Spirit. Now there, there's a lot of stuff there to be an encouragement to meek and humble souls. Number one, Jesus didn't love us so much that he sent himself. And if you have grown up being told that the Old Testament God is nasty and then Jesus comes along, it's idiocy. The Bible tells us God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Okay? And so the love of God sends Jesus. Number two, 
The Holy Spirit is a wonderful gift, and God promises regularly in Scripture that he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. I mean, you see it right here, right? You would have asked, and he would have given. And what do you think it means when the Bible says, ask, and you shall receive? Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. And so Jesus is saying very clearly here, I am God's gift to you this day, this moment, Samaritan woman. In all your wickedness, I am God's gift to you. And if you knew that I am God's gift to you, you would look at me and you would ask me, and I would give you living water. Now, what's the difference between living water and dead water? Living water is active, it jumps, it, it, it falls, it, it waves, it, it's very, very powerful. Dead water, it's a becalm, it's, it's, it's the doldrums, it's, it's completely quiet. And so we're not just talking water here, we're talking living water. You know, when I think about I know that I, you know, every preacher has certain themes and you get sick of them. But little children ask for the same jokes in the same books over and over again. And so if you just be humble and take my, my themes, all right. One of my themes is just the perpetual nonsense talk about passion in the world today. And it just makes me puke. And the reason is because it's a lie. Almost any time somebody speaks of their passion for something, like I have a real passion for small, small grain sand as opposed to coarse sand, you know. You know I have a passion for Kleenex that has lotion on it. You know. Or I passionately hate Kleenex that has lotion on it because it messes up my glasses when I try to dry them after, you know. <laughs> you know, and it is... So often it's trivialities that people use the word passion for, or they're leading worship, or they're writing a worship song, or they're preaching, and they talk about passion this and passion that and passion the other thing. And there's an old saying, and it is, methinks the lady doth protest too much. And the truth is today that you are so satiated with every form of stimulation that there is no passion even for sex left in our world. And so that's the nature of decadent societies that they have to engage in more and more perverse forms of sex in order to have any sort of excitement because they're completely, completely jaded. And in a jaded, decadent culture, what do you do? You talk about your passion. Why? Because you have none. And so it's aspirational. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, I'm bringing it up because this generation is dead. Tom Wolfe says it. He has an essay on hookups. And he says, sex is boring. And he wrote that 15 years ago. And if sex is boring, can you just imagine the kinds of work that you'd have to go to and to enjoy food (laughs) you know food you know you'd have to turn it into a sacrament and of course that's what the whole foodie scene is today it's a sacrament and so food is like decadent sex is decadent and so what happens is we're inured 
and you don't know the word, but there's a reason you don't know that word. You're, you're, you're jaded. You don't know the word, but there's a reason that you don't know that word. You're dead. And what Jesus is saying here is that if you knew the gift of God standing in front of you, you would ask me, and I would give you the Holy Spirit, and he would revivify you. He would make you alive. And this is absolutely true. The Holy Spirit is living water. And when you have a Christian on the campus of IU, you done got living water. And everybody will notice it. <laughs> Trust me, I know it. I went to UW-Madison, all right? If you have a real Christian on the campus of UW-Madison, you have unbelievably living water, especially in the humanities, okay? And so I would say to you at this point that if you want to be odd, ask Jesus for the Holy Spirit. And you will be very odd. And you say, well, no, the Bible doesn't say that. And I say, does too, does too, does too. And you say, well, where? And I say, well, you know that word holy? All it means is peculiar. And what's peculiar but odd? In other words, the minute the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in a man, he becomes as diverse and pluralistic as you could conceive. So diverse and pluralistic that he begins to believe that it matters that he's a man or a woman and that God gave it to him and it's not a choice. And boy, you want to talk about weird today. That's weird. Come on, people. Wake up. Wake up. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you freedom to think biblically. Ask the Holy Spirit to indwell you so that you become living water, so that you go into a class and you actually have the freedom to think contrarian thoughts. You no longer in lockstep with the world. Don't you realize that's what Romans says about the Christian? Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your deep sentimental thoughts about Jesus. But is that what it says? No, it's not what it says. It doesn't say listening to praise songs will transform you. What it says is be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so the Christians are the only intellectuals. The only. Because Christians are free to follow truth wherever it leads and not to stop at the stations of the multicultural crosses, <laughs> you know, doing obeisance at every one of them, you know. Bow here, bow there, bow there. Yes, 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 yes. And so Jesus says what? He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, and obviously that's himself, you would have asked me and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, sir, 
you know that she's feeling the rope tight. You know, she, she just feels like her out-and-about lifestyle is being constrained slightly with this conversation. She thinks that she's not entirely in control of where this conversation's going, right? Can you feel that? And so she sends a little shot across his bow. And she says, sir, where am I? Eleven, you have nothing to draw with. Yank, and the discussion goes back down to earth, doesn't it? You don't have a pot. You don't have a jar. You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You remember what Nicodemus said? Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he can't inherit the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus yanked that conversation right back down to the ground. And Nicodemus said, well, how can an old man be born again? Right? You talking about me going back in my mother's womb and coming out again? And she's saying the same thing. You don't have anything to draw with. And the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? And you are not greater than our father. So a shot across his bow and then a principle of Samaritanism. All right. You are not greater than our father. You know often when you speak to somebody about Jesus Christ, deep inside you, you know that the one thing you better not do is indicate in any way that the mother or the father or the grandmother of that person was wrong spiritually, right? You know that, right? Whatever you do, make it look as if the faith of Christ that you're calling to them to was the faith of their ancestors, all right? And so she yanks in her ancestors and makes it clear if he keeps going that he's going to be trampling on her fathers, right? And so she says to them, you are not greater than our father Jacob. Was Jacob her father? No, Jacob was not her father because she was a mongrel race. Was Jacob her father spiritually? No, Jacob was not her father spiritually. Why not? Because she had had four husbands, and the man she was living with was not her husband. There's absolutely no way, either genetically or spiritually, that Jacob was her father. And so she's just putting it right out there. You know, our father Jacob, you know. Are you... You, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Okay, people, you all recognize this. Our temple and our gods and our principles and my father and you don't have a jar and you can't, you don't have, you, you know, it's like, dude, get out of my, get out of my face right? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. So how would you say Jesus is addressing it? Well, he's avoiding, isn't he? He's completely avoiding it. He doesn't stop to correct her. There was a lot to correct her in, wasn't there? He just says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, there's the explicit me, all right, I will give him, shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. 
Now, there's so much beautiful there. Jesus is telling a woman who had made shipwreck of her life publicly and started as a Samaritan. He is telling her that if she asks him, he will give her water that will give her eternal life. And so is he a friend of sinners? Well, she's a notorious sinner. We'll get We'll get to that next week when she goes to the village because you just have to understand what she's saying to the village when she goes to them and says, he told me everything. I mean, everybody in that village knows what everything he told her, right? So the woman has heard him go back and re-engage the Holy Spirit and sin in her heart. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. So she's hedging her bets. You see that? She's like, okay, I'm a sucker. I'm ready to sort of believe. And furthermore, I don't really like coming out here. It's a long way from the village. It's hard lifting that water up out of the well. Okay, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit open. Right? Can you all see that? You're supposed to nod your head. You you think I'm right, right? Thank you. I like to be right. It's true, but it's a joke. All right. Now watch this. If there's anything in this story that is contrary to the church in Bloomington and in America today, it's right here. Not one of us ever does what Jesus does. Never. And the reason is, We have no faith in the Holy Spirit. We have faith in ourselves. We have faith in our our craft brew taste in our major. We have faith in our practice uh, rooms. We have faith in our grandmother. We have faith in everything but the Holy Spirit. But Jesus knows the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says this to her. Go call your husband. And come here. And I guarantee you that that's the one thing you would never do. And so what we all have to do at this point is we all have to say, well, that's Jesus. Which is our way of being wusses. And saying that nobody could ever be expected to do what Jesus did. And yet Jesus said that the man that's going to follow him must take up his cross with him. And Jesus also said, no servant is greater than his master. If they hated him, they'll hate us too. And so if we will not depend on the Holy Spirit and instead depend on our sunglasses or our eyeglasses, on the taste and clothing, on which schools we go to, how wealthy we are, how sophisticated our church is, which side of town it's on, our ability to relate whatever that is, you know, which generally means to not relate. And you say, well, no, 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 it does mean relate. And I say, no, it doesn't. Because the central reality of that woman's life was the guilt that she bore every second of every day being a notorious sinner in that community. And if you will not engage somebody at the point of their sin, you have absolutely no love for them. None. 
if you live a life of denying your sin, you will live a life of denying other people's sin, and you are incapable of loving people if you deny their sin. I'm just telling you, it's true. And I can tell you, time after time, I have spent my life dealing with people tempted by homosexuality. And the central reality of their lives is that they abhor the temptations that they face every day. They abhor them. And there are two kinds of people tempted by homosexuality. One kind is the person who abhors it and seeks deliverance. And then abhors it and seeks deliverance. And the other person is the person that hardens their heart and, and makes their temptation into a principle of their life. The principle of their life. And that's true of every single besetting sin. And so, you know, we look at homosexuality today because that's what we live in the midst of is a great culture war over homosexuality. And I say, forget the culture war. I want to know, do you love people tempted by homosexuality? And so if you've got a flaming gay in front of you, what do you do? Do you show your sophistication, your ability to relate by trying to find out whether they like Judy Garland? And you say, well, what's that all about? And I say, oh, my point is, what are you going to do? Talk music? Talk movies? If you're a Christian, for heaven's sakes, love them. Tell them your sexual sin. And you say, well, I don't have any. I say, liar, liar, pants on fire, nose is as long as a telephone wire. You say, well, I'm a woman and I don't have them. I say, liar, liar, pants on fire, nose is as long as a telephone wire. Scripture is filled with sexual sin. Homeschool households are filled with sexual sin. Christian schools filled, public schools filled, universities, Christian colleges filled with computer screens, filled with sexual sin, both women and men. And then we make a big show of showing how we can relate to sinners by not bringing up the fact that people are suffering under the bondage of their sin and that it's the defining issue of their life and they have no hope of a holy God ever showing mercy to them. And you're going to avoid the sin that defines their identity? And I tell you, that is the absence of compassion. That is the absence of love That is the absence of self-knowledge on your part. If you'll begin to look at who you are and why you love Jesus, if you're a Christian, you know you love Jesus not because he did a most excellent job uh, getting a book passed down through generations or not because there are many fine churches with good architecture. You love Jesus because he showed you mercy, and you knew you did not deserve anything good from his hand. And that's the beginning of the Christian life. And so if that's the beginning of Christian life for you, why would you think it's going to be any different from a politically correct sinner? Every single sinner is boringly the same, and it's only when you become a Christian that you become peculiar. Okay? Sin is conformist. Sin is mold. Sin is ideology, propaganda, political correctness. Christian faith is absolutely bonkers. 
It's, as Chesterton says in Orthodoxy, is the most exciting thing in the world other than becoming a father. <laughs> and so Jesus loves the woman and he touches the boil. Now, you want to know why you don't touch the boil? You don't touch the boil because when you make a decision to lance a boil, you know what often happens? You get pus all over you. And there's no way to love somebody lost without getting their pus all over you. You can't be a clean machine and love sinners. The minute you love them, you're going to invite them into your home and then your children are going to see real sinners and that's an awful thing because of course they've never seen you. My wife and I were working with a woman, homeschooler, who had just spent her whole life protecting her children from the world. And then she called up to say that her home was shot through from top to bottom with incest. And so as we began to talk to her, at one point I stopped her and I said, you know something, you spent your whole life protecting your children from all the evil. And then come to find out, you are the evil. You. Listen, when Jesus says, go call your husband, Jesus is making a loving and compassionate statement to this woman. And if we can't get that into our minds, that it is compassionate and loving to speak to the guilt of our loved ones, of our neighbors, of our professors. I always try to get students to speak Speak to your professors about their soul. I mean, you would not believe the joys I had at UW-Madison speaking to my professors about their souls. And I know you think I'm bonkers, and I'm not. You know, at that time, my hair was down on my shoulders. I had a pierced ear, and I just would talk to them about Jesus. You know, and I'm sure they all thought that I was just an idiot. And I was. But one of them, who was the chairman of the philosophy department, when I had him as a professor, and I tried to explain to him that the whole basis of the law of Scripture is that it's hopeless and you can't live by it. Because he was teaching an ethics course where he said the first thing for any system of law to be legitimate is that you have to be able to fulfill it. And I, I, in class, I just went bonkers. You know, I'm saying, no, no, the whole point is you can never obey it. That's the point, you know. And he was like patronizing, yes, Tim, yes, Tim. And all the grad students were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So then I walked him to his office after the class, and I kept out after him, after him, after him. Dr. Moline, don't you see it? It's, you're just so close, you know. And... And I'm, I'm telling this because it's the beginning of a semester, and those of you who've been here have heard this before, but an, a few years later, Mary Lee and I were on the Northwest Tollway outside of Chicago, and we went into a McDonald's, and there was Dr. Moline with uh, Keith Yandel, two philosophers from UW-Madison. And I said to Dr. Moline, I said, Dr. Moline, I have to ask you, have you become a Christian? No, I said, where are you with Jesus Christ? And he looked at me, and he said, well, Tim, he said, you will be happy to know that I have professed faith in Jesus Christ. And I said, "Woo!" And I gave him a hug. I said, I'm sorry, I have to do this. So I hugged him. He was a very sort of 
philosopher, if you know what I mean. And I said, how did it happen? And he said, well, I was down at the National Center for the Humanities, and things went bad with my son, and I had nowhere else to turn. And so I turned to Jesus Christ. And um, he said, I wrote Keith. Keith had been a Christian. He was from our church, and we knew Keith. He said, I wrote Keith and told him that I had converted. And he said, well, you know Keith. He's known to be a critic of philosophy. And he said, Keith wrote me back, and I said, John, I'm very happy to hear you've converted, but may I ask to what? <laughs> and he said, so I wrote him back, and I said, Keith, how does Trinitarian theism sound to you? <laughs> and so I want you to look at your professors. I want you to look at Look at them and their souls. I want you to look at your parents and your children. I want you to look at your neighbors, your roommates. And don't get involved in a battle with them. But don't give in. And be a spring of living water because you understand that it was the Holy Spirit bubbling out of Jesus that said, go call your husband. How do I say that? Do you understand? Jesus had the Spirit of God when he said to her, go get your husband. Do you understand that? It was the supreme moment of love in that conversation. And we know it was the Holy Spirit because Jesus said to us that it's good that he leaves so that he will send the Spirit. And then he defines the Spirit this way. He says, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so if you like living water and you like the Holy Spirit, then you will love raising the issue of sin with great compassion and tenderness. And then you will be able to say, I am a man, a woman of compassion. We'll pick this up again next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for sending us the gift of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Father, we are timid and fearful. And we do much rather trust ourselves and our own taste and music and clothing and, and we don't want to be dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you will give us faith this week to speak to souls that despair of eternal life about sin and righteousness and judgment and about the mercy of God in the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, help the body and blood of Christ to become more precious to us, that we will be exuberant and passionate in desiring to speak of it to those who are on the highway to hell with no hope and utter despair, we pray. Fill this church, Father, with brothers and sisters in Christ who are as sinful as we are and who have the joy of the Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.